Welcome to Calvary Chapel of Columbia, where we're unpacking God's truths one verse at a time. And now here's Pastor Tim with today's message. Acts chapter 1, stand with me. We're continuing our verse-by-verse study through the book of Acts in the series I've entitled Church on Fire. Last week we looked at the first 11 verses. Uh, Today we will finish the chapter, Lord willing. So, without further ado, Acts chapter 1, beginning verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up uh, to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who uh, became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered amongst us and was allotted his share in this ministry." Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language El Kadama, that is field of blood for it is written in the book of Psalms may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it and Let another take his office. So one of the men who haven't accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forth two, Joseph called Barsabas, who who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, which show which one of these uh, two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry of apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Father, we thank you for your word this morning, and we ask you, Lord, to speak to our hearts. We pray that you would Uh, penetrate any of the hardness of heart this morning, God, that you would get right to our heart, right to the heart of hearts, Lord, and that you would speak to us about what you want us to learn from this passage. Lead us in all truth by your spirit, God. We give you room in this place to do what you want. This is all about you. So we pray you lead us in all truth this morning and guide us in the word of God uh, through the power of your Holy Spirit. And may your son be glorified, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. A Sunday school teacher was getting ready for her lesson, and she was in the supply room looking for some things, and she came to a cabinet that was locked, and she had to get into that cabinet to get some things, and so she, she's like, oh, no, I don't have the combination. It was one of those combination locks, so she does what anybody uh, ought to do. They go to the pastor. Of course, he'll know the combination of the lock, right? So the pastor goes into the supply room, and he's like, well, I don't know the combination, but let's see what we can do. And he grabs the lock in his hand, and he puts his hand on the dial, and he looks up. 
And after just a, a short moment, he just begins to confidently dial in this lock. And lo and behold, he comes to the final turn and click, it opens up. She's blown away. She's like, whoa, that was a miracle. He smiled at her and he said, the combination's written on the ceiling. So, <laughs> hey, sometimes we can look for a miracle when it isn't there. And sometimes we can miss one when it is. We need help, amen? We need discernment. Hey, this can happen relating to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. You know, the Holy Spirit has been blamed for all kinds of weirdness in the church, and the claim is that it's the, the, the Holy Spirit working, and then there are things that happen in the church that the Holy Spirit gets no credit for. And I want to tell you this morning that God wants us to know the difference between what is him and what isn't. What is him and what isn't. Him. And, I, and I want to tell you that the way that we can gain that discernment, the way that we can come to those right conclusions relating to things that are of God and not of God is simply by drawing near to him. Really, it comes back to relationship with God. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. The more you know God, the more you know what is of God and what is not of God. You know, we're not sovereign like God, but we have a God who wants to reveal himself. And he's revealed himself very, in much detail in these 66 books that we have called the Bible. We can know the difference of what is God and what isn't God by drawing near to God. And that's what I want to talk to you today about this. We're coming to a passage here where many theologians are divided on whether or not this was of God or not of God, whether this was of the Spirit of God or not of the Spirit of God. And my prayer is that by His grace, we might land on the right side of that conversation this morning. May He show us the way. By way of reminder, Luke is the writer of the book of Acts. He's writing to a man named Theophilus, which we don't know a lot about. We know is this is a second volume of the, of, of the person and the work of Jesus Christ, and now it's transferred over to the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. Thus, the book of Acts is not the, the acts of the apostles, but the acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. The Holy Spirit is on highlight in the book of Acts, which should give us encouragement because, listen, you and I have the same spirit Jesus had. You and I have the same spirit of the people who are in this book. Those who would uh, do the acts of, of the Holy Spirit, are, we have the same spirit. And God wants to do the same thing. We can learn what, the, what things we ought to be doing to allow the Holy Spirit to work through us as we work through this book. This morning, there's some great things that we're gonna find. The Holy Spirit, uh, you know, by way of Jesus, who was filled with the Holy Spirit, folks, who was baptized in the Holy Spirit, who started his ministry, he, he told his disciples in Acts chapter one, verses four and five, he ordered them, that's his disciples, not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. That was around the 40th day of Jesus revealing himself after his resurrection, and we know 10 days later, 
On the 50th day, the day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit fell upon the disciples in the upper room. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and to wait in the upper room for the Holy Spirit to, to come upon them. And then he said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witness in Jerusalem, in all Judea, in Samaria, and to the end of the earth. Then Jesus ascends to heaven, folks. He goes away, his disciples standing there looking, and they're reminded by some angels, hey, you got work to do, fellas. Go and do what he said to do. Verse 12 is where we pick it up. This is, this is where now it says, then they, speaking of those disciples, they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. Now, there's something we can learn about this particular passage. Number one, we see the obedience of the disciples. They're obedient to the Lord. First step in trying to understand what God wants for your life is a step of obedience. What has he already told you to do? Are you walking in obedience to him already? How in the world do you expect him to reveal more when you're not doing what he said to do in the first place? Hey, listen, we need to be obedient people. We need to walk in obedience to the Lord. It's interesting here in this passage that Luke would talk to a guy named Theophilus about some Jewish things here. You know, Theophilus was probably a Gentile, probably a Roman, maybe a Roman official, maybe a lawyer. We don't know, but, but here's what we know is that Theophilus knows something about Judaism. He knows something about it. Otherwise, it would make no sense for Luke, uh, for the Holy Spirit to speak through Luke and inspire him to write, you know, this, this, that they were on the Mount of Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. This is to a man that he's revealing uh, himself to. What is a Sabbath day's journey away? It was 2,000 cubits. Now, because you, you, you guys totally understand biblical measurements, you know exactly how far that is, right? How far is that? No, you probably don't. You're like, what is that? So it, it, it probably was a half mile to a three quarters of a mile, something like that. The, this is the rabbinical law. This is not God's law. This is man's law. They determined by way of the encampment of the Israelites coming out of uh, Egypt that they were to stay a certain uh, length away from the tent of meetings and such and they determined that to be 2,000 cubits so they said now we're going to establish a law this is what man does we put laws in place that are not meant to be there we're going to establish a law of what a Sabbath day journey is it's exactly 2,000 cubits now wh why does this matter because this tells us something about Theophilus he knows something about Judaism and he's explaining this to him the disciples are walking in obedience to the Lord. They're in the upper room in Jerusalem waiting on the Holy Spirit to fall upon them just like Jesus said that, that it would happen. They're waiting. The word waiting in the Greek, it literally means to remain in a place and or state, listen, with expectancy. To wait and to remain in a place or a state with expectancy concerning a future event. These disciples are actively waiting for the Lord to do what he said he was gonna do. They're believing by faith. They're waiting upon the Holy Spirit to come. They are in, in active faith here. They have expectancy. Now, I don't know about you, but waiting on God is never fun. 
Waiting on God sometimes feels like forever. But here's what I'll tell you, is that in the waiting, there is much fruit that can happen in your heart as you're waiting expectantly upon the Lord. These guys want to see God move. They're waiting to see God move. They're believing that God is going to move. That's what it means to wait in the biblical context of that word with expectation. Hey, listen, we're waiting here today. We are in the wait as it relates to the second coming of Jesus Christ. We're waiting. We're waiting for the rapture of the church. We are waiting with what? Expectancy. We're waiting knowing that Jesus is coming. Hey, listen, this isn't a popular thing in the church today. A lot of people aren't waiting like we're waiting. A lot of people are waiting for the kingdom to come. The kingdom has come in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. We're waiting for the king of kings to come get his church. We're waiting for the king of kings to come back and to settle uh, for a thousand years upon this earth. We're waiting expectantly that he's going to do these things. Why? Because the Bible says it's going to happen. So many churches out there in our culture today will not talk about the second coming of Jesus Christ. They will not talk about the rapture of the church. But do you know that this was a main teaching in the early church? Do you know that it was just over time it, it, it got lost? And I could understand if I'm fifth century, Israel's not a nation. They're dispersed all over the world and I'm thinking like, man, I don't see how this can happen. I don't see how God can bring Israel back into a nation. You know, uh, I'm, not, I'm not limiting God, but I just don't see how, I could see how somebody could lose sight of that. But listen, May 14th, 1948, what happened? Israel became a nation. Israel was regathered. God did what, exactly what he said he was going to do, and the church has been waiting in expectancy for all of these things to happen, and they will continue to happen exactly the way that God says they're going to happen. We are waiting in that capacity today. We're waiting on the Lord. He's coming. But we have a job to do, and we need that empowerment just like they did. And so they're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. Uh, they, they, what, what did they do as they're waiting with expectancy on the Holy Spirit to come? They devote themselves to prayer. They're in obedience. Now we see the devotion uh, in verses 13 and 14 here. It says, when they entered, they went to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, uh, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus and Simon the zealot and Judas the son of James, all these were with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Notice it says that they were in the upper room. It doesn't say that they were in a upper room. It says that they were in the upper room. Why is that important? This probably is the same upper room that Jesus was in. The same upper room that Jesus, not too many days from before this, where he, dis he told his disciples, listen, I'm gonna go away. I'm gonna be crucified. One of you will betray me and all of these sorts of things. Uh, this is going to happen. Uh, and then he institutes the Last Supper. Here, we're gonna partake of communion here at the end of this service today. Jesus, the night before, the night of his betrayal, he, he institutes the Last Supper. He institutes this thing called communion where he says, this is my body, take and eat. This is the, the blood that I've shed for you, take and drink. For this is the new covenant 
And here we are partaking some 2,000 years later. And, and it was, all this happened in a upper room. Can't be dogmatic that it's the upper room, but it does say the upper room. We're gonna, when we go to Jerusalem here at the end of the year, we're gonna go to an upper room. And it's gonna look like this up here. It's gonna be, it's really beautiful and all of that. It's something like that. It was something like that kind of a room. And it wasn't necessarily that room exactly, but it was something like that room that Jesus spoke to his disciples before he was crucified. And here, they're now up in the upper room waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. And more importantly than the room itself is who is in the room. We have Peter, who was the one who Jesus restored three times after his triple denial. John, the beloved, always presenting himself as the beloved of Jesus Christ. You know, it's like, oh, I'm Jesus' favorite, you know. That's how he presents himself in his gospel. And then you've got his brother, James, who is called James the Greater. He and John are the sons of Zebedee, a.k.a. the sons of what? Thunder. Hey, amen, man. I want that nickname, yeah. The sons of Thunder. Peter and James and John, these guys were in the inner three that, were, that Jesus would bring along and he would specifically teach them other things that not all the rest of the fellows were part of. One of those situations was the transfiguration of Jesus Christ um, there on Mount Hermon. And we'll go there too. You'll see it in Jerusalem when we go there. But Jesus on a high mountain place somewhere, the, the highest mountain peak there in Israel and, and some, probably somewhere up there, Jesus was transfigured and James, Peter, James, and John were there watching that happen. Jesus revealing himself in a new way to them. Not only do we have those fellows, but then we have Andrew, who is Peter's brother. He was the first one to find the Messiah, by the way. He, along with a guy named Philip, who then introduced Jesus to a guy named Nathaniel, who has the famous statement that says, can anything good come out of where? Nazareth, because Jesus was a Nazareth, from Nazareth there. Man, we're gonna, that guy is never going to live that down and for the rest of heaven. Be like, oh, come on, come on, say it. Say it, say it, man. He who, can anything good come out of, ha, 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 everybody in heaven, you know. Hashtag oops, I probably shouldn't have said that. Then we have Thomas who gets the bad rap, you know, doubting Thomas. Listen, Thomas, if you read the account, wasn't the only doubter in the room, folks. Go back and read it. But Thomas was there, Bartholomew. We don't know much about him. Matthew, he is Levi, the tax collector, called on the road from, on Capernaum there, where he was collecting taxes as a Jew for the Romans. He's a disciple. He's an apostle. James, the son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less. Then we have Simon the Zealot. This dude was on fire. They call him the Zealot, Simon the Zealot. You know, the guy that's super on fire for the Lord all the time. Simon, you know him. And then we have Judas, the son of James, not to be confused with Judas Iscariot, who is dead at this point. It's these fellas, these 11, along with, it says, the women who no doubt include Mary Magdalene and and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary and Martha, and Salome, among many other women probably, including, it says here, Mary, the mother of Jesus. Do you know this is the last time Mary, the mother of Jesus, is mentioned in the New Testament church here? The last time. Now, I want you to pay special attention to what Mary is doing. Why is Mary numbered amongst the 120 that are there in the upper room with the disciples, what are they all doing? 
They're all waiting on the Holy Spirit, aren't they? They're all waiting on the coming upon of the Holy Spirit. Why, why is that important? Because that tells us right here that Mary is not co-redeemer. Mary is not a co-redemptive person. She's a vessel that God used to bring the Son of God into the world. And that is a privileged position, folks. But it is not a place of worship. She ought not to be, uh, pray, we ought not pray to Mary. We don't worship Mary. Uh, she is a vessel that was honored to bring the Messiah into the world, folks. And I would say that in, in evangelicalism that sometimes Mary gets downplayed too much. She gets downplayed too much because the Catholic Church elevates her to an improper place that then the evangelical church puts her lower than she ought to be. I think we should honor her the way that she should be honored. What a privilege it was to be Mary. Just as much as it was a privilege to be the Apostle Paul or to be Peter or somebody like that. What an honor to be the, to the mother of the Son of God that she would have that privilege and you know, there, she will have a crown in heaven. She was, she was a, her heart was sold out for the Lord. That's why she was chosen. Man, Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there with everybody else waiting on the Holy Spirit. Not only was Mary the mother of Jesus there, but also his half-brothers, Jesus' half-brothers. They're all believers now. They're all, they're, what are they doing? They're waiting on the Holy Spirit to come. James, who will lead the, uh, the, the, the church in Jerusalem. And then we have uh, uh, Joses, and we have Judas, who is also named Jude, who we know wrote the book of Jude and Simon. These collectively with, with are the 120 that, that are in that upper room, and what are they doing? They're in one accord. Now listen, I'm a huge fan of Honda. I have no idea how you put 120 people in a Honda Accord. I have no idea how that happens. It, you know, this went over better in the first service. Um, uh, this is standard pastoral humor, and so you're, you have to give the, just the, the standard congregational laugh. It's, anyway. But they're literally in one accord. What does that mean? They are unified. They're unified. Listen, they had never really been unified up to this point. They were with Jesus. They walked with Jesus and all of that, but the reality of it was is they were all on different pages and they were all about themselves, weren't they? We, we hear stories, you know, of, of them talking about on the way, you know, walking with Jesus and saying, Jesus, uh, you know, hey, who's gonna be the greatest in the kingdom? And they're all thinking about, yeah, I'm pretty good. I'm it's probably going to be me. You know, they're dividing because they're people. They're divisive. They're, 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 they're people of all kinds of walks of life. You know, you have to understand there are, there are issues within this group. You have Matthew, who's a tax collector for the Romans, and then you have Jews collectively coming together. And how in the world do they, are they able to be unified? Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. Listen, we're in a group of people in this room that probably we would never cross paths with or we would probably wouldn't necessarily fellowship with or hang out with, but, but it's Jesus who brings the body of Christ together. He's the unifier. And after his death and resurrection, his body is now unified. They're in one accord. That's, listen, that's God's heart for his church, folks. God wants his church to be unified he wants his church to be 
uh, to be operating with one heart, with one vision, uh, with one mission for one Lord. He wants us to be unified. Jesus' high priestly prayer was, Father, may they become one like you and I are one. That's what he wants for us. That's God's heart for us. How then do we allow Jesus to be a unifier in, in the body of Christ? We align our hearts with his. We align our hearts with his. The best way that I can think of to align my heart with Jesus is through prayer. Prayer is that very thing, aligning your heart with his. God, your will be done. It's about you, Lord. What do you want to do in this situation? The Lord knows your heart. He knows your petitions and all of these kinds of things. We come and we petition his throne room. We, we pray and we ask and all of these kinds of things, not because God needs to know, because he knows, but because God needs you to know that he knows. God needs you to be on the same page with him. God knows what he's doing. He's at work in things that you can't even think of. And God is saying, I know, I hear your heart on that. Let me align you. Let, you align, let, me, let me align you with me in this moment as you're praying about this stuff. And you know how the Lord just begins to, you know, he starts to navigate in our hearts. He starts to mold our hearts when we're in prayer before him. And I will tell you that if you want to be unified in the body of Christ, there's no better way to do that than corporate prayer, folks than to be coming together, to be crying out to the Lord together. And I'm not talking praying wimpy prayers. I'm talking about powerful prayers that are aligning. God, your will be done. God, we want, it. everything starts with prayer, folks. We know this. We know this. And yet, to the shame of the church, the prayer meetings are the most unattended meetings of the church. People will, chair, will, will come to a potluck, they'll come to a worship night, they'll come to all these other things, but prayer alone is not enough. Prayer alone is not enough. Lord, we need, we need something dynamic to happen. Um, hello. Something dynamic to happen? Everything starts with prayer. You want revival, folks? You want revival? You know what rev where revival starts? It starts on our knees. And, 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 and yeah, it can start in your own prayer closet for sure, and it should, but it definitely needs to start in corporate prayer as we pour our hearts out before the Lord. Listen, the reason the church in this day and age is not unified is because people are not listening to the Father. They're not unified. They're not even unified under the same roof. How in the world can we be unified out in a community of people who have differences in the way that we see things. It can happen, but it will not happen if we don't align ourselves with the Lord and it starts with prayer. There's corporate prayer that happens down on the square. I think it's the second Saturday of the month down at, uh, in, in middle of Tennessee, down at the courthouse area. Just believers getting together and praying. You wanna see stuff happen, that's where it starts. It starts with prayer. Everything significant that happens in the book of Acts starts with prayer, folks. Starts with prayer. When the people of God begin to pray, then, and, and we're gonna see this alignment with the prayer in the Holy Spirit, prayer in the Holy Spirit, prayer in the Holy Spirit. It's, it's through prayer that then God moves through the power of his Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. We're to be praying people. And not just praying by ourselves, but corporately praying people. 
you know, Jesus said, my house will be called a house of worship. No. Jesus said, oh, my house will be called a house of discipleship. No. Jesus said, my house will be called a house of prayer. Do you know, he could have said all of those things and they would have been correct. It is a house of worship. It is a house of discipleship. But more so than anything, Jesus said, my house is a house of prayer. Hey, let's take him up on that. Let's make it that. Let's make it a house of prayer. Make it a house of prayer where we're praying together. You can't make it on the second and the fourth Sunday of the month at one o'clock here in the sanctuary where we corporately pray. Hey, that's okay, but you know, do your best to gather together in some way, shape, or form and pray and pray that the Lord will move. Pray that the Lord will have his way. Pray that the Lord will, uh, you know, use this body of Christ here to make impact here in our community. It all starts with prayer. I was reminded uh, earlier this last week, I was having uh, coffee with Alan Buckley, and we were, we were talking about, you know, the book of Acts and the Holy Spirit and stuff, and I was telling him, yeah, prayer is, you know, where, where it all happens, and and it reminded me of a story that Charles Spurgeon tells about. He had some young college students that showed up at his church that wanted to hear him preach. You know, they wanted to hear the prince of the pulpit, man. I want to hear the powerful preaching of Charles Spurgeon. And so they go to his church, and he actually, the, the, the doors of the church aren't open yet because there's a service that's about to start, but they haven't opened the doors yet. So they're waiting outside. Spurgeon himself opens the door, and he invites these young students in. They don't know it's him. Remember, they don't have the internet, man. There's no way that they know who he is. So they think it's just some, some, some dude, and he's like, gentlemen, let me show you around the church. And so he's showing them around, these young, young uh, Bible students and, and such, and, and he said, you guys want to see what powers this church? And they're kind of thinking like, not really. Uh, that's kind of in the middle of July. You want to see the boiler room? No, not really, but they didn't want to offend the guy, so they said, yeah, sure. They didn't know what he was talking about. So Spurgeon leads him downstairs in the basement of his church. And remember, a service is about to start, and he leads him through this corridor into this back room where he opens the door and he whispers to them, this is what powers this, this church, 700 people in a room praying for the service that's about to begin. 700 people praying for the service that God will have his way, that God would be elevated, that God would move in the midst of this service. And that is what powers the church. If you look back on any revival, folks, it all starts with prayer. It starts with God. It starts with prayer. Here, uh, recently, you know, the, the Jesus Revolution movement's kind of show, movies, uh, kind of showing a little bit of, uh, you know, really Greg Laurie's story, but um, Calvary Chapel in, in general as well. And do you know that when Lonnie Frisbee, the first time that he was able to share his testimony, um, uh, he, he actually... That, that evening, when Chuck allowed him to share his testimony at church, there was about 30 people there. And he shared and everything, and then, uh, and then they, they began to just worship the Lord, and they were, there was 15 people. This, these are Lonnie Frisbee's words um, re relating to that night. 15 people at the altar, they were praying, and they were just worshiping. And Kay Smith, Pastor Chuck's wife, stood up and she said, the Lord, she had a word of knowledge from God, which is a gift of the Holy Spirit. And she said, listen, God is saying that, that the entire coast of California is gonna be blessed by the prayers and the worship that are happening 
at this altar right now. Lonnie Frisbee, in his own words, says, wow, okay, well, that's kind of wild, you know, kind of thing. And, and then he said, but I said, but Lord, I receive it. And he said, these 15 people all said, verbally, Lord, I receive it. And then the Lord spoke again to, through Kate right after that, Kate, Kate Smith, and she said, not only is the Lord going to bless the entire coast of California, but, she's, but the Lord's gonna move across the entire nation, and there's going to be a revival like we've never seen, and guess what happened? It's exactly what happened. Where did it start? It starts with prayer, folks. It starts with getting on our knees and seeking the Lord, humbling ourselves and praying, the Bible says. Starts with prayer. Charles Finney, he believed in that prayer is the key to revival. He's, he wrote, all revival is birth by prayer. It all starts with prayer. If you feel disunified from the body of Christ, if you feel like you're outside of really the body, why don't you just start to pray with each other? Why don't you start to get, gather together and pray and you will be unified. The Lord will change your heart in those things. Jesus wants to be praying, us to be praying people. Listen to what he said to, to the 72 that he was sending out in Luke chapter 10. Two by two he sent him out. But, it, but he said this, he, he said the, har, the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly. Pray earnestly earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out labors into this harvest. Jesus said, you want to be impactful? Begin with prayer. Start with prayer. You see, a, a, there's a harvest out there, folks. There's a massive harvest in our culture. You want to affect the culture? You want to see people come to Christ in the groves? Start by praying, not pettily, but praying earnestly, praying, uh, you know, with fervency. Lord, I think the Lord needs to put a heart for the lost in the church today. I think there's, there's been a lost heart for, for, for lost people, and I think as Christians, we can begin to just operate in our own little bubble, and we can, we can forget about why we're here. We're here to tell lost people about Jesus. Everywhere you go, there's people that are lost. And you know, if God would align our hearts with his, I wonder how we would view those people. I wonder if we would view them, if we would be looking down on people or if we would be on our faces, man, just weeping over the lostness of this world. Pastor Chuck's wife used to, they used to go to the beach and pray for the hippies. She used to weep over the hippies. She used to weep over them. Pastor Chuck, not so much. But his wife, she was weeping over this generational, our generation of lost kids. Listen, it starts with prayer. Paul said, pray, pray at all times in the spirit. Pray, just pray. The early church was devoting themselves to prayer as they were waiting on the Lord, and we should as well. This devotion we find here leads to the explanation by Peter relating to Judas. Uh, draw your attention to verse 15 now. In those days, Peter stood up amongst the brothers and the, the company of persons was in all in about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered amongst us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Very important there. Here, uh, you know, there is an apparent sadness to me in the upper room here. 
So there's a parent, there's a lot of questions here. You know, as they're waiting on the Holy Spirit and they're praying, I can imagine maybe they're in the same room that they were in with Jesus as he tells them what is going to happen just right after this, that somebody's going to betray him. Matthew chapter 26, verses 21 through 25, he says, truly I say to you, this is, this is the night of his betrayal. Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, is it I, Lord? In other words, nobody knew it was Judas. Like Judas wasn't the dude in all black, emoed out, you know, black fingernails and all this kind of stuff. We're thinking like, that wasn't, dude, they had no idea. They're all thinking, is it me? Jesus, please say it's not me. Whoa. The recognition in that statement says that it could be me. Says that it could be me. And you know what could be you? Listen, when you start to think you're way stronger than you are, you're about ready to fall. Be careful. Be careful. Is it I, Lord? God, don't allow me to allow my heart to get that far away from you that I would betray you, God. This is, in that moment, I could imagine the self-examination that was going on in that room. And then it came to Judas. Is it I, Lord, they said? In verse 23, he answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but listen, woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Verse 25, Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Jesus wasn't surprised, folks. Jesus wasn't taken off guard that it was Judas that would betray him. Jesus was the one that knew. He was the only one that knew in the room other than Judas himself. None of the other disciples had a clue. And Jesus said, bro, it is you. It is you. You've given your heart to Satan. You've been living in Darkness, not in light, Judas. And that's why you're gonna go down this path. Was Jesus caught off guard when Judas stood there in the Garden of Gethsemane with soldiers behind him and he comes up to Jesus? No, he wasn't, he wasn't caught off guard. He knew it was gonna happen and he said that. So you can imagine if you're in that upper room 40 some days later and you guys, 120 of you who have been around and heard and seen uh, you know, the different things that Jesus has done and all and and now you're starting to go, but what about Judas? Man, well, that was a surprise, wasn't it? Well, well, I mean, how could that happen? How could somebody who walked with Jesus, was called by Jesus, how could they have done this? And they have questions. They've got questions, and Peter stands up, and he says, listen, by the scriptures, it was supposed to happen. Man, Peter is right on track here. Peter is saying, listen, here's what I want you to hear. God intended for this to happen. He knew this was gonna happen. Judas did not ruin God's plan. He actually fulfilled it. 
Like God is so in control that every error that you make, that every error that I make, that every betrayal can be used in sort of a, you know, in a way to, for him to fulfill his purposes. But he doesn't cause them often, but he uses them. Because God is outside of time and space, folks. He knows the end from the beginning. There is nothing that catches him off guard, nothing. And he allows what he allows. And do we understand all of that? No. But here's what we know at the end of the day. He is in control. He's in control. Peter is saying the circumstances look fishy. The circumstances look grim. You know, the circumstances, man, how in the world could this all fit? And he points them back to Scripture, by the way. And he says it, it was written that it would happen this way. It was written that, listen, when you're confused about things, when you're trying to determine, is this God, is this not God? What, you know, what are, what are the things going on in the world today? Where do we go? We go to God in prayer. And we go to God in his word. And we look for the answers. And we look for the answers, and Peter is right on track here. Here's what I will say about Judas, though. I think there's an important part of this that we want to focus on for just a second. Judas, uh, you know, here tells us that Judas was numbered amongst them, meaning he was chosen by Jesus. Our, our, our Calvinist friends will say that, you know, well, he was chosen to do this. From the foundation of the world, he was born to be the son of perdition. I don't think so. I don't think that's the case. Because what we'll find here, here in a moment, is it tells us that Judas turned away. Judas turned away. Judas gave his heart to Satan. He was active in this situation. He wasn't passive. In other words, he wasn't destined uh, to be the son of perdition. He happened to be the son of perdition because that's what he chose to do, folks. And when it comes to salvation, you know, uh, does God draw us to himself? Yes. Who's God drawing? The whole world. For God so loved the whole world. God loves the world that he gave his only begotten son. Who's God drawing to himself? Here's the thing. I believe wholeheartedly God is drawing the entire world. The, the blood of Jesus Christ was given for the sins, 1 John, for the sins of the whole world, folks. The blood of Jesus Christ is available for anybody that wants it. That's why the Bible goes on to say that anyone who calls upon my name shall be saved. Well, aren't we chosen? Yes, we are. We're chosen by God. We're drawn by God, but we have a choice in the matter. And this is no different. This is no different. Judas had a choice on whether he would turn his heart towards Christ or whether he would not. And here's the other thing is, Jesus loved Judas. Jesus loved him. I can imagine the conversations that he would have had with Judas. As Judas, he knows he's gonna betray him. Jesus knows these things. He says it's gonna happen, and he tells Judas, yeah, it's you. But he loves him still, and he's ministered to him. Could you imagine the three years that Judas is walking with Jesus? He's the treasurer. Listen, the love of money is the root of all evil. He's the treasurer and look where he's headed because he loves money. And you see it in the, the account of uh, various different places where he's upset because somebody wasted the perfume on anointing Jesus. You know, we could have sold that and given it to the poor. Or you could have lined your pockets, Judas, is what you're thinking, really. Because the love of money 
is the root of all evil. Judas loved money, and look, it only takes, uh, you know, you give, the, you give the Satan a foothold, folks. Just give him a little bit of something to work with, and man, he'll take over your life. And you will live in a darkness that you've never seen before. If you allow that, it's your choice. You can do what you want. I think Jesus was reaching out to Judas. I think through, throughout his entire three years, I don't think Jesus was just like, oh, there you are, you betrayer of son of man. You know, he, it wasn't like that. I think he was loving him. I think he was ministering to him. I think he was reaching out to him. In fact, it's interesting at the Garden of Gethsemane when Judas does come to Jesus and what happens? You remember his words? I think this is a, an invitation from Jesus to Judas in that moment and he says, right when he's about to betray him, he said, Jesus spoke first and he said, friend, why have you come? Friend, why have you come? That's like Jesus extending the hand of grace one more time. Are you sure, Judas, that you want to do this? Because the word of God says it would be better for you not to be born than to betray the Son of Man like this. Are you sure that you want to do this? And then Judas does what? Betrays the Son of Man with a kiss. It's you. Oh, hey, Jesus. Jesus knew what he was doing, but I think in that moment he was giving him an opportunity. God, G Jesus loved Judas and Judas turned away from the Lord and what ends up happening like anybody listen like anybody who turns away from God here's what will happen is you will go down the path of self-destruction you will go down the path of self-destruction why in the world are suicide rates like they are in our culture today because people are turning away from God and we have a culture that is becoming godless folks the only thing, our, the saving grace of our culture today is, is the church of Jesus Christ, not of Latter-day Saints. It's us, guys. We are what is saving this nation from going headlong into darkness. To, and, and, and it's coming. It will come. It will come. When, when the church is removed from the, this earth, there will be a darkness on earth like never before. We're already seeing Satan just in, in, the, in the, he's not working in, the, 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 back, the back corners or you know, in the alleys and such. He's out front currently and he's just blatantly doing things and the world is falling for these things. Listen, man, we, we can impact the culture by remaining the way that we are but the Lord's gonna let that happen. He allowed Judas to turn and to do the things that he wanted to do and he did. And he ends up betraying the Lord and, and Judas goes down a road of self-destruction and he kills himself. Now, I don't know how this happened, but he went to some field that was purchased by the religious leaders with the money that they gave him from uh, you know, betraying Jesus. He, he gave it back to him and they said, oh man, we don't want this blood money. Like God, is it like they're not already in trouble by God. Like, I mean, it's like, dude, you gave him the money in the first place. Now you don't want it back? I don't think there's a lot of difference here. But anyway, well, let's go buy a field with that blood money. That's why it's called that. Not only that, but then Judas goes out to that field, and he's sorrowful. He's sorry. He's sorry that he betrayed Jesus, but he's not repentant. There's a difference between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is, I'm sorry I got caught. Godly sorrow leads to repentance. Judas, I don't believe, was, was repentant. And you know, it shows in his actions afterwards. He, he hangs himself. 
He tries to get himself, who knows how that all works. It's kind of a weird situation because he didn't die from hanging. He died when he dropped off whatever the, the, the limb out must have been over some kind of a drop off. And it says when he fell down, he fell down in such a violent way that his guts burst out of his body. That's the, that's the picture. Like I've never seen that before, but I'm guessing that's gotta be a pretty violent fall, right? The branch wasn't strong enough or the rope wasn't strong enough or whatever, but he fell to his death and he burst open and his blood was spilt on that land that was purchased by the blood money. Listen, that is the end of anyone who rejects Jesus Christ, folks. That's just the beginning of the destruction that he will experience, you know? To reject Jesus Christ means eternal damnation. And the Bible's clear about it. You know, those, there's, that, that's another question in our culture today. Is there a hell? I mean, Jesus talked about it a lot. There is a hell, folks. And God does not want people to go there. That's why he's after people. That's why he's, he's sent us into the world to go tell people. Go tell them. They don't want to go to this place, but I'll let them choose that, just like he allowed Judas to make that choice. And he will allow the rest of the world to choose whatever they want to do. Peter, you know, after kind of explaining this, he, he, he comes to this, this place where he says, listen, listen to what the scriptures say about, about this situation. He quotes two psalms here, Psalm 69, 25. May their camp be desolation, let no one dwell in their tents. And then Psalm 109.8, which says, may his days be few, may another take his office. What Peter is doing is, is directing them back to Scripture, pointing to, the, pointing to the reality that Jesus was gonna die and that Judas was going to leave a vacant um, spot open in the apostolic headship that they needed to re be replaced. This is where it gets dicey with the theologians. Now, they, now the question is, is this God or is this man? Is this the Holy Spirit that's leading Peter and the other um, apostles to choose another apostle to replace Judas here, or is this man? Um, <clears throat> let's look at the appointment here in verse 21. So one of the men who have <clears throat> accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out amongst us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness of his resurrection, uh, and they put forth two called Joseph, uh, called Barsabas, who was also called Justice, why he has so many names, who knows, and Matthias. And they prayed, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in, uh, in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas, listen, turned aside to go to his own place. Judas turned aside to go to his own place. Super important. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered amongst the 11 apostles. Well, how did they choose the, the one to replace Judas? They seem to have a systematic approach here, I think, which is, it's a, I think it's a biblical approach. Number one, they're obedient to the Lord, number one. They're in obedience to God. They're in the upper room like he told them to. They're praying. They're in one accord. They're in unity, right? That's also a great element that when you're making decisions, you want to have that, whether it's in your home or in the church, whatever the case might be. But then notice he goes on here. Now, here's the criteria for somebody to be a modern-day apostle. That's why I don't believe there are any modern-day apostles. The, the new apostolic reformation is not biblical, because there are no apostles in the, in the same sense as this. God is not giving revelation. The word of God is the revelation. 
God is telling us, now God is speaking through words of knowledge and such, for sure. But to call yourself an apostle, I think, is outside of the lines of Scripture. To call yourself an ascent one is fine, whatever. But to say that I am an apostle, um, let, let me tell you, when James, when James, the brother of John, died, nowhere does it say that they replaced him. If, the, if there was more than 12 apostles, wouldn't they have replaced James? Understand the position first and foremost. The purpose of the apostolic office was to establish the church. These guys were the writers of scripture. These guys are bringing the scripture. They're writing it down. This is the purpose. God is saying, I'm gonna send men to establish the church. It's going to be established and then I'm gonna use people in the gifting of the Holy Spirit to move the church forward, but not in this office. And this is the way I see it. I think there were 12. The bigger, biggest question here is, is Matthias gonna, is his name gonna be written on the stone in heaven and, as in Revelation 21, or is it gonna be Paul? You know, I, I used to be super dogmatic that it was gonna be Paul. You know what? As I considered this, as I was studying this, I was thinking like, these guys aren't haphazardly choosing this man. They're not haphazardly coming at this. They're coming at this in a very biblical way, in a way that we could almost ascribe as a means of us being able to discern and determine what God's will be for our life. Look what they're doing. First and foremost, he said, notice, it must be one of the men. Must be one of the men. He's not saying man in, in terms of mankind. He's talking about men. Women should not be pastors. A woman could not necessarily fulfill the, the, the criteria of being an apostle because it's call, it's call for a man. And that's not me. Again, I said it last week. And the reason I'm saying this is because this is an issue in our culture today. Do you know the New Testament uh, first century church was not struggling with uh, egalitarianism, meaning that w women could step into pastor's roles and stuff? They weren't. They didn't struggle with that. The Bible doesn't say that ever. It doesn't ever say that that's okay. And in fact, it says it's not okay, right? And even here, when they're choosing, they're saying, it's saying listen, it has to be a man. When you look at 1 Timothy chapter three, it has to be a man. When you look at uh, Titus in the bishops and such, it has to be a man because that's God's pattern. We are of a complementarianism, meaning we believe that uh, men and women both are used by God in the church, but they have different roles. And that's, that's the way we see it. That's, that's a traditional line of thinking relating to scripture folks and it's not that women aren't incredibly powerful teachers or anything like that but God put a prescription in place relating to the structure of his church and the home and this is the way it's supposed to be argue with God about it you know but that's the reality it says they must be one man multiple times it says man here um, not only that but listen they must be they must have been with the Lord, they must have seen the Lord going in and out and amongst them. They must have been around Jesus from the baptism of John until his ascension. They had to be somebody that was there, somebody that saw Jesus' miracles, that heard his teachings, that experienced these things, that had to be somebody that was, was a part of that. Not only that, but they had to be an eyewitness of the resurrection, guys. They, they couldn't have been somebody that heard about the resurrection of Jesus. Why? Because the resurrection is what all of Christianity hinges on, folks. If Jesus Christ didn't rise from the dead, then we might as well go home because our faith is dead. Paul says it clearly. We, we have no point in gathering together because like every other dead religion, 
uh, then Jesus wouldn't have, wouldn't have been who he said he was gonna be. He wouldn't have been a false, false teacher and a false prophet. But he did rise from the dead. And they needed an eyewitness to fulfill this role so that they saw that. And so it, it, they, they kind of come to this understanding of like, okay, so who do we have? It's got these two dudes. Hey, Justice and Matthias, these are the only two guys that fit this criteria. Now here's the last Here's the last criteria. This is the biggest one, actually. Is notice what they say here in their prayer. You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these you have chosen. Lord, the last criteria is anybody who steps into this office has to be appointed by God himself. This is not an appointment by man. When we appoint an elder to the church or lay hands on and, and, and ordain somebody as a pastor, we're not doing anything. We're simply honoring what we see God doing in a person's life. It's God who appoints. The Lord is the one that puts the position in place, not us. And here they're saying, now, Lord, these guys fit the just general criteria of what, what we believe an apostle should be. And so now, Lord, it's up to you. You choose. This is where theologians go, yeah, but then look what they did. They just shook the dice. And they said, okay, let's see who does it. Hey, you know what? Let me ask you this question. What did Peter just say? The scriptures determined the circumstances. Who's determining the dice? How does the dice fall on Matthias? Not by chance. Not by chance. This, to me, is the, the, the apostles. I see this differently than I ever have before. And that's the point of coming to scripture with a fresh heart, with fresh eyes, saying, Lord, show me. I don't want to stay on my preconceived ideas. I could have taught this and just said this was an error. I totally think it's Paul. I don't not think it's Paul, but I think the way they came, apro uh, uh, came across in this is totally biblical. And to be honest with you, I don't know. I don't know if, if Matthias will be, his name will be on there or Paul's name will be on there. But you know what I know? God knows. And I believe these guys are operating by faith in biblical practices. By faith in biblical practices. I would much rather answer to God for taking a step of faith and saying, Lord, I believe this is the, the lane you called me to go down. I'm operating by faith. I would much rather answer to him in that regard than for him to say, why didn't you do what I said? Because I was afraid, God. I didn't, you know, to me, they're totally, uh, their, their, their faith is in the Lord here, not in them. And so they let the Lord choose. And here, the, the I mean, the uh, casting of lots was a biblical way to make decisions. In fact, Proverbs 16, 33, the lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. So you make your choice on what you think. At the end of the day, when we get to heaven, we'll find out. You know, Matthias was a man of character. We know nothing about this guy. But in, in the sure fact of the way that they came to a decision on, on a justice in him, this dude was a, was, a, was a baller in Christ. You want to be a baller in Christ, look at this guy. He was one. Selected out of 120 people. He had a life that exemplified the apostolic ministry, folks. He had a life that was lived in that way. And I want to encourage you this morning Live your life like that. God wants to use you. He has a plan. And he wants to use all of us. And 
you know, the first thing that it's going to take, as we wait on God to come, you know, we still have a mission. And the first thing it takes for us to stay on mission is to be obedient to God. Are you walking in obedience this morning? You know, if you're not, step into it. Stop asking him to show you more when you're not doing what he already told you to do. Do what he told you to do and he'll show you more. But be obedient to the Lord. Be willing to step out. Not only that, but then, you know, be in prayer. Not just by yourself, but corporately. Come together. Line your heart up with the Lord and with his people. You know, use the scriptures to determine your steps. Is this in the Bible somewhere? And what does the Bible have to say? That's the, that's the instant question you should ask yourself about anything you're trying to make a decision about. What does the Bible say? What does the Bible say about this? And, and finally, let God do what he does. Let God do what he does. He'll, he'll show you, he'll give you the direction and all of that. Do you just be faithful to those things? And he'll do what only he can do. He's the appointer of man. He's got a plan for your life. He's got a purpose for you. He has a ministry for you. But you, you do the, all these other things and he'll show you the way. Amen? Father, thank you for your word. And Lord, we ask you to just help us now as we prepare our hearts for communion in these last few minutes, Lord, that you would move in our hearts, that we would draw our attention to you. We thank you for this scripture that helps us to see how you use um, you know, all things together for, for the good of those who love you and how you can use even the mistakes we make, God, how somehow that fits in your plan, overall plan. It's unbelievable, but you are that much in control that you can use all things. Father, we ask you to just lead us in all truth, Lord, as we continue to seek you in your word and that uh, uh, we would have discernment relating to the things that you want us to do, Lord, that we would learn from the scripture as it relates to how we are to make decisions that we're to be willing and obedient to your word, we're to be in prayer, we're to be people that look into your, look into the scriptures for guidance and uh, that we allow you to move as only you can move in the way that you desire to move. Your will be done. So we just wanna surrender ourselves to you this morning, Lord. Pray for anyone that doesn't know you, Lord, even right now, that they can call upon your name. Your word tells us that anyone who calls upon me shall be saved and you can change your eternal destination right now by simply praying a prayer of faith to the Lord this morning that says, God, I turn away from my sin today. I want to be forgiven for what I've done, and I want to live for you. And I believe that you sent Jesus in my place, that he died and he rose again from the dead so that I could be saved, that my sins could be forgiven, and I could live in heaven with you forever. And I want to receive you as my Lord this morning. And we know, Lord, it, it's not so much about the words, it's about the attitude of the heart, about the sincerity. And so we ask, Lord, if there's anyone that doesn't know you, that they come to that place of bowing their knee before you because what we're about to do is for believers only. This is, for, this is the, the representation of the new covenant that you've given for us, that it was established in the breaking of the body and the giving of the blood of Jesus Christ. The new covenant was birthed in this way, Lord, and here we are this morning. We want to celebrate it, but it is for believers only. And so, Lord, we pray that we would partake this morning as people who are identifying with what Jesus has done for us, receiving from him this morning, celebrating the life that we've been given through the body and the blood of Jesus. So, Lord, move in our hearts.
pray in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. You can hear more of Pastor Tim's studies through the Word of God on our website, www.calvaryofcolumbia.org. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again as we continue to study God's Word.